allow it to. I may know that the word of God is quick and powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, but I may also know that you have to allow the word of God to uh, be applied to your life, and you have to be obedient to the word of God in order for that truth to set you free. And so the key verse on which this entire series will be based is found in the New Testament, where it says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 7. The key verse for this entire series, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 7. The word of the Lord speaks to us and says, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but he has called us to holiness. So beginning today and continually, uh, continuing Tuesday uh, evening, Wednesday evening, and Thursday evening here at the church at 730, it is my prayer that we are all reminded of the tremendous fact that we have been called to holiness. Turn to your neighbor just tell him, we've, we've been called to holiness. Called to holiness. I'm going to have to, we're going to teach, we're going to talk, we're going to uh, get into the word of the Lord. I really need your minds during this series. I need you to pay close attention. I need you to follow along. And uh, we're going to have to teach fast. We're going to be using quite a bit of scripture and talking about some some very heavy things, uh, some very important things. And so I just I, we just really need to ask God that he would just uh, allow us to uh, keep all of our thoughts captive to be able to focus upon the word of the Lord. And somebody said, Amen. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. As we look at this verse, I believe there are three realities that we, that we must realize uh, from this context of Scripture. And those three realities of this verse are, are these. Number one, we have to be listening to the one who is calling us. You got to be listening. If he's calling us to holiness, you have to be listening for that call. And how many know the only way that you are going to be able to listen or hear someone when they call you is because you are in close relationship with that person. If, if Brother David back in the sound room was going to, to call me and try to get my attention, I, I, if I uh, it was not in close relationship with him, if I was far away from him, I could not hear that call. So we have to be listening to the one who is calling us, and we have to be in close relationship with him in order to hear that call. We have to, number two, we have to exert personal effort and energy in order to follow after the calling of holiness. Somebody said amen. It's one thing to be called to a certain place in God, but it takes effort and energy for you to get where you are in order to get to that place. So if God is calling us, it's not, okay, God, we're just going to leave it up to you, and you're just going to have to do it. You're just going to have to make us holy. You're just going to have to do all. No, God, God there's, he's going to call us to that place, and he's going to help us. But at some point, there's going to have to be some personal responsibility. Amen. Somebody said Amen. Number three, we have to understand that this calling towards holiness is not a one-time thing. So as long as we'll continue listening to this calling of holiness in our lives, it will continue to call us into uh, greater levels of holiness each and every day that we live. God, and what I'm trying to say is this. God is not just going to call us during these next few days and then not speak to us about holiness until the next series. 
But it is the purpose and the point of this series in order for us to get the mindset and the mentality that every single day God is calling us. If pastor's teaching about it, if we're talking about it or not, God is calling us to a place of holiness. And so therefore, I want to desire to have a relationship with Jesus Christ that is close enough so that when he calls me in that still small voice, I'll be able to hear him and follow after what he is calling me to do. So it is these three ideas and it is these three biblical concepts that we hope to cover uh, over the course of the next few days and be obedient to this calling of God that is over our life. And as we begin uh, this series, it would be very easy to just, for us to just jump right into uh, beginning to talk about what, what, what our holiness looks like and, and what our distinction should look like and what our separation from the world should look like. Because sometimes when you're talking about holiness, that's the first thing that, you're, that your mind goes to. When you talk about uh, you know, holiness and a holiness series, that's the first thing you start talking about is, okay, well, how am I supposed to, what am I supposed to do and how am I supposed to look and how am I supposed to act? And so it would be, it would be very easy for us, for our minds to, to, to go there at the beginning of this series. The problem is, is that if we start off talking about our holiness or lack thereof, then, then we are missing the most important lesson of this topic. For it is not God's will that we begin this series by focusing on our holiness. It's not God's will that we start by coming to grips with our inconsistencies and with our struggles in life. It is not God's plan for us to first uh, uh, shine the light on our downfalls and upon our mistakes. In fact, to begin with, it's not God's will that we look at us at all. Why? Why? Because we do not have the ability in and of ourselves to recognize all of the failures and faults that lie within us. You got to get this today. You miss everything. We do not have the innate ability to recognize the faults and failures that we have within us all. Look at how the book describes us. Mark chapter 7 and verse 21. For from within, within all of us, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries and fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They're in us. And they defile us. So we see the enormity of spiritual error that lies within the hearts of us all. And whereas we might be able to recognize the most blatant of failures, whereas we might be able to be cognizant of the most vile of faults in our lives, if left to our own devices, there will continually be a multitude of misdeeds, moral breakdowns, and sinful wrongdoings that lie present and active in each and every one of our hearts that will never be identified by us. Let me, let me say it like this. It would be easy to point out the fact that we had murdered somebody. Okay? I mean, if, if, if you miss that, something bad wrong. But it's not so easy to point out the things that we're coveting. 
We, we would be quick to realize our faults if, if we're committing adultery. But sometimes the way that we deceive others is not so readily realized by us. The areas where we have pride are not always so obvious as if we were committing adultery. So if we are incapable, which we are, in and of ourselves of recognizing the totality of immorality that lies within us, then there must be an outside standard. There must be an outside measurement outside of us, outside of our own cognitive reasoning that we can look to that would have within its power and within its ability to shed light and understanding into our being concerning every area of our living where we are falling short. Every area. Am I making sense today? If, if God has called us to holiness... And if we are incapable of measuring holiness by our own reasoning and by our own deduction, then he must have given us something that would make it possible for us to recognize our faults in order that we might be able to follow the call of holiness. And he did. He did give us. But many people miss it. They miss what it was that he gave us because they think that we are to judge our personal holiness based upon someone else's holiness. So they realize in and of myself, I realize that I can't uh, recognize all of the failures in my own life. So here's what I'll do. I will find someone who I think is holy. I will find someone else who I deem as more holy than me and I will try to measure up to what they do and how they act and how they live. And so they pick the most holy person that they know and they try to measure up to be like them. Or we do the reverse. Most of the time we do the reverse. And we say things like this. Well, I don't do what so-and-so does, so therefore I must be pretty holy. I don't go to the places that so-and-so goes, so I must be pretty holy. I don't talk like so-and-so talks, so I must really be answering this call of holiness over my life. The problem with both of these is that once again, we are being the judge for what holiness should look like in our lives. We're being the judge. We are setting, we are picking what the standard is going to be, either above us or beneath us, in front of us or behind us, more holy or less holy. But, but ultimately, we are the decision-making entity for what holiness should look like in our own lives. And that's not how God intended for it to be at all. So how are we supposed to begin this process? How, if we're not supposed to take, or if it's, if it's really impossible for us to take inventory of our own selves in order to bring about change. Now, obviously, we can do that on, 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 on some levels, but not on all levels. 
If, if, if we shouldn't look at the lives of others as, as guidance for improvement, then, then what should we look at? What is that standard? What is the measurement that we should be looking at and compare? We, we know we shouldn't compare ourselves amongst ourselves. And it's at this point that God gives us revelation and understanding when he says this in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15. But as he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be you holy. Why? For I am holy. Here's what God wants us to understand. Get this right here. This is the key to the whole thing. This is the key to holiness. Our level of holiness is directly tied into our understanding of God's holiness. He said, be ye holy, for I am holy. Because God is holy. That's why we're supposed to be holy. And the more we come to grips with the holiness of God, the more understanding we'll have concerning our own personal holiness. If we miss that principle, we've missed everything. And we'll struggle with holiness and we'll struggle with separation for the rest of our lives. Hear me. We do not live holy just so we can escape hell. We live holy because God is holy. And we want to be pleasing to a holy God. We do not live holy just so judgment won't be poured out in our living. We live holy because we understand how holy God is and we want to be pleasing to him. Somebody said amen. You, you got to get this next point. The thing that makes sin wrong is not the effect or the outcome of that sin. The thing that makes sin wrong is the holiness of God. You say, well, well adultery is wrong because it hurts the spouse and it hurts the families. Those are byproducts of it, but that's the byproduct of the sin. It's not what makes the sin a sin. The thing that makes the sin a sin and the sin wrong is the fact that there is a holy God to compare it to. If there was no holy, pure God, adultery wouldn't be wrong. Because it would be common and natural. It's hard for us to think this. It would not be sin. It, it might hurt a family or something like that, but it wouldn't be sin and it wouldn't be wrong uh, according to Scripture because the thing that makes it wrong is that there is a holy God. Mm. Oh, hallelujah. The reason why the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is wrong is not because of what they bring about when we do them. The reason they're wrong is because God is is holy. That's what makes them wrong. They're wrong because God is so pure. 
The thing that makes something wrong is the fact that there is something that's right. You cannot have a wrong if there's not a right. Oh, hallelujah. See, now why? You got these people that, that go around and then they say, they say, look, look, look at all the evil in the world. Look at all the wrong in the world. And then they use it as defense to say there is no God. If there was a God, why would this happen? Why would this happen? Why would this? Listen, the very thing, the very thing they're talking about, the very wrong that they're addressing is proof positive that there is a God. Because it wouldn't be wrong if there was no right. Psalms 19 and 8. The statutes of the Lord are what? They're right. They are right. Rejoicing the heart, the commandment of the Lord is what? Pure. He is right and he is pure. The statutes of the Lord are right. And that's what makes everything else that does not live up to that standard wrong. The commandments of the Lord are pure. Therefore, that which does not measure up to his commandments are impure. You see, this is, this is, there's such a fallacy in our world today. And I was just listening on the way over some Christian song, and, and they were talking about, they're like, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't want rules, we just want God. We don't, we, we don't want all these restrictions, we just want God. Are you out of your mind? Have you ever read the Word of God? There is a right. And if there is right, that means there is restrictions. And God has applied and established rules in order to be right. In Hebrews 4.15, the Lord is described as being without sin. In 1 Peter 2.22, he's described as one who has committed no sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he's referred to as him who had no sin. The Apostle John stated in 1 John 3, 5, that in him is no sin. The Old Testament describes him prophetically as the righteous servant. The one who always does right. In Isaiah 53 and 11, and as, uh, or as the one who loved righteousness and hated wickedness. In Psalms 45 and 7, loves righteousness, hates wickedness. Hates wickedness. Oh, God don't care how I live. He hates wickedness. We've got to grasp this today. The book says, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Light and darkness, when used in this way in Scripture, have moral significance. For John is telling us that God is absolutely, listen, God is absolutely free from any moral evil. And that he is himself the essence and the epitome of moral purity. God is is the essence of moral purity. He is holy.
without sin, without blemish. So when we sin, are you with me? I told you I need I needed your minds today. So when we sin and when we fail, it's not the consequences of that sin and of that failure that makes it wrong. What makes it wrong is that when we sin, we are sinning against a God that is so ultimately pure and holy in all aspects of his being. That's what makes it wrong. Because it is against him. You see, but this is the problem. This is the problem that most of us have. I'm going to help somebody. This helped me. This, this is the problem that most of us have. For our attitude, many of our attitude towards sin is more self-centered than God-centered. For we are more concerned about our own victory over that sin than we are about the fact that our sin grieved the heart of a holy God. Many Christians strive to overcome sin. Great, wonderful. But they do it for the wrong reasons. They strive to overcome sin because they are personally success-driven in their Christianity. Instead of desiring to overcome sin because of the fact that they have received a revelation of the holiness of God. And therefore they understood how offensive their sin was in the eyes of God. All right, let me, let me make a plane right here. Ask yourself this question. The last time you sinned. Don't play like it was 10 years ago. <laughs> the last time you sinned, were you more concerned about how insulting and unpleasant your act was against a holy God than you were about how that sin was going to affect you personally in some way or another? About it. I sinned. Oh man, this is gonna affect this is gonna affect my testimony. This is gonna affect my witness. This is gonna affect my relationship with so-and-so. This is gonna affect my eternity. I gotta do something about this because I, I wanna make sure this is cleaned up. I wanna I, I wanna do something about this because I wanna make sure that my relationship with so-and-so is right or or so that my testimony is not marred. I wanna do, I wanna, I, I gotta get this right because I wanna make sure that I'm ready if the trumpet were to sound right now. I wanna make I, I, me, 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 me. And the sin is all about me. And it's never about the fact that we have sinned against a holy God. When is the last time you sinned and sat stunned to silence because of the fact that you realized what you had just done in the face of a God who is so pure? 
We will never be able to truly follow after this call to holiness correctly until we see our sin as being that which is in total opposition to a holy God. Never. For all sin is against God in the sense that it is his law that has been broken. His authority that's been despised. When I sin, I am despising the authority of a holy God in my life. I am saying, your authority means nothing to me at this moment. When I sin against God, it is his government that is being set at naught Every single time I do that which is contrary to his word. Pharaoh and Balaam and Saul and Judas each said, I have sinned. Great, wonderful. But the returning prodigal said it correctly. He said, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. It's not about how is this going to affect me. It's not about how is this going to affect my witness. And, and all of those are byproducts of sin. And we've got to deal with those. And, and we have to keep those in, 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 in our mind and, and, and all this kind of stuff. But the, it's the first reaction that I'm, I'm talking about today. It's the initial reaction to our sin that I'm talking about today. We have to come to grips with this. We have to be like David. And that when we sin, we have to understand we are sinning against someone. We are sinning against the Holy One of Israel. They understood their sin was against God because somewhere along the line they had received a revelation of the holiness of God. Oh, hallelujah. Can you imagine if you get such a revelation of God's holiness? Where it is so ingrained into your being and it is so ingrained into, into your mind, into your thinking. When you have such a revelation and an understanding of the holiness and the purity of morality of God. When you sin, the first thing that's going to come up into your thinking is, I have just sinned against a God that is so pure. I have just sinned against a God who is so holy. The ramification of my failure goes far beyond just how it's going to affect me to the point where I understand how greatly it contradicts the holiness of him. Unless we get a real revelation of the holiness of God, we'll never be able to come to grips with this truth. And we'll continue struggling with our failures because it will be, for the most part, always about us. I struggled and I offended this one and I affected this relationship and I did this. And I'm going to get back up and I'm going to try to fix this because I don't want this to happen in my life again. And just this constant because we haven't got a revelation of the holiness of God. Watch what the psalmist says in Psalms 119 and 104. Man. Is it? Somebody tell me what time it is. Hour? Okay. All right. Watch this. Psalms 119, 104. 
watch, through thy precepts, I get understanding. The psalmist is saying, through thy word, I get understanding. But then watch, watch what he says. Therefore, I hate every false way. No, no, no. That's a whole lesson in itself, but here's what I want you to get. If that is true of how man would think, how do we consider, or we need to consider how God would think? Because from this verse, we see that as we grow in holiness, we grow in his precepts and understanding of, of his law and his, the realities of who he is, we become even that much more to hate sin. We are to grow in hatred of sin. It should be constantly where we are continually. We're never going to get to the place in our lives where we just, you know, we got it. We got to try to get there, but we're going to fall and we're going to fail sometimes. But we're to grow in this hatred towards sin so that when the opportunity and the temptation comes our way, we realize, no, it is going to be a holy God that I am coming against by doing this thing. And therefore, I hate this thing. That's the goal. But, but think about this. God, who's infinitely holy, must therefore have an infinite hatred towards sin. If, if ours, as we grow in holiness, then our hatred for sin grows. But God is the epitome of holiness. He is the totality of holiness. Therefore, he has an infinite hatred of sin. You with me? We often say this statement. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And we believe that, and it is so blessedly true. And we love that. The problem is, is that we are always, we always Say that first part so quick to get to the second part. Right? God hates the sin, but he loves. And we hold that second part out, and that's the second part is what we talk about. We rush over the first to get to the second. But hear me. We cannot escape the fact that God hates. Somebody say, he hates. Our sin. I was talking with Brother Brown last night. Listen, God forgives the sinner, but he never forgives the sin. Because all sin has got to be judged. Now, thank God for the cross. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But somebody had to pay the penalty for sin because God hates sin. He does not excuse sin. He forgives the sinner, the one who committed the sin, but he does not forgive the sin. That sin has to be punished. I thank God that he, he was the spotless lamb that took that punishment for us so that we don't have to take that punishment. But it does not excuse the sin. It has to be dealt with. <laughs> By the CD. I got five minutes, Brother Fable, and I got to rush. 
We cannot escape the fact that God hates our sin. We may, listen, we may trifle with our sins, and we may excuse our sins, and we may downplay our sins, but God hates our sins. He hates my sins. Therefore, every time I sin, and every time I do something that is against God, it is something that God hates. He hates our lustful thoughts. He hates our pride. He hates our jealousy. He hates our outburst of temper. He hates our rationalization that the ends justify the means. He hates it. If we're not careful, we can become so accustomed to our sins that we lapse into a state of peaceful coexistence with them. But God never ceases to hate them. Why? Because he is so holy that he cannot help but hate that which is unholy. That which is in contradiction to him. He is a holy God. And he cannot stop being holy. That's who he is. So it's the first order of business when responding to this calling of Christ and this calling of holiness in our lives to get a revelation of the holiness of God. That's the first order of business. If we don't get that, we've missed everything. Because when we get this revelation of the holiness of God, we we can be like Joseph when he says in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? The temptation is here. The the, the opportunity for me to sin is here. But how can I do this great wickedness and sin against a holy God? How? How how could I put my hand to that thing? How could I allow my eyes to take part in that thing? How can I allow my my fleshly nature to bring me to that point, to, to involve myself in this or this or this? Why? How could I ever do that and sin against the holy God? But we don't think about this. Because when, or at least many times, but when that temptation arises, the first thing we think is, how is this going to affect me? And the thought of how it's going to affect me will not detour us. Prove positive because we keep doing it. But when we get a revelation of the holiness of God, everything changes. That's why the Lord would tell us to be holy because he's holy. For he knew that the only way we were going to be successful in this calling was if we pursued after a revelation of his holiness in order that we might come to grips with the fact that when we sin, we are sinning against the very God who shed his blood so we did not have to. For the knowledge that we have concerning the holiness of God should be the deciding factor concerning how we live and how we talk and how we live and how we look and how we carry out our living. Holiness of God, the holiness, I'm doing this. Is this pleasing? Is this against a holy, holy God? So because our level of holiness is directly tied and proportionally tied to the level of our understanding concerning the holiness of God, then our understanding of God's holiness must be the first priority in our pursuit of a holy lifestyle. We'll never become more holy simply because we work harder at it. 
will only become more holy when our revelation of God's holiness increases. When we struggle with holiness principles, it's because we are struggling with our knowledge of the holiness of God. When people fight against the teachings concerning separation of, of the world and all this kind of stuff, it's, not, it, it's because they have yet to truly appreciate and come to grips with the totality of God's holiness. For if you would ever and if I would ever see him as he is, we would not be saying, how far to the line can I get? He who is ultimately the most pure being, we could get a glimpse of even a fraction of his holiness. We're not going to be We're not going to be questioning. Not that all questions are wrong, but with a questioning spirit and an attitude of constant, a, a desire to. Toe the line and be in the gray areas and no. Hear me now. Hear me now. I'm, I'm, I'm hurrying. Here's the thing. Just as any other attribute of God, his holiness can never be something that is fully learned mentally or intellectually. For it is something that if to be comprehended fully must be encountered experientially. I felt God speak to this so strong to me in study. For instance, I know another of God's attributes is love. How many know God is love? This is one of his characteristics. This is one of his loves. But I know that. I know that this is his attribute because I read in the word of God, Ephesians 2 and 4, when it says, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us. So I know his attribute, Sister Vera, is love because I've read it in the word of God. But along with my mental understanding of God's love and my scriptural understanding of God's love, I also have an experiential understanding of God's love. For I know what it is like to personally feel the love of God flooding my soul. Can, can I get somebody to testify? I know what it is like. I have experienced it for myself countless times. What it is to feel the love of God. And we could talk about how, uh, how we've experienced other attributes such as, such as the faithfulness of God. I know God is faithful. I read it in his word. But I also, Brother Al, have witnessed it and experienced it for myself. I've experienced for myself the faithfulness of God time and time and time. Again, it's more than just mental or intellectual knowledge. It is experiential knowledge. I have experienced the characteristic and the attribute of God's faithfulness. I have experienced the attribute of the goodness of God and the patience of God. Oh, how, how I have experienced the patience of God and the mercy of God. 
experienced these things. But what we have to remember, and you got to get this, this is so key. What we have to remember is that without the holiness of God, without the attribute of God's holiness, all of his other attributes are meaningless. All of his other attributes are without purpose. You take the holiness out of God, you have stripped him from being God at all. For what good is love if it's blemished? What good is faithfulness if it's not holy? What good is what, what good would God's patience and mercy be if it was not holy? This is a deep thing. You got to, we, we think about this. His holiness. Listen, God would speak concerning this very thought when he says this in Psalms 89. I got to hurry. Psalms 89, 35. God speaks of this. And he says, once have I sworn. What did he swear by? By my holiness. He said, I have sworn by my holiness. Hear me. God swears by his own holiness because this, listen, because that is a fuller expression of himself than anything could possibly ever be. He is holy. That is the fullness expression of who God is. The holiness of God. And so when he decides that he needs to swear by something, he can't swear by anything of man. And then he knows I'm going to swear by myself. But what is it about myself that characterizes all of what I am? He says, I will swear by my attribute of holiness. Listen, holiness is the transcendental attribute that runs through all the rest of his attributes in order to allow them to accomplish their intended purpose. It's holy mercy. It's holy patience. It's, it's holy love that, that allows love to do what love does and God's patience to do what God's patience does and God's mercy to do what God's mercy can accomplish. The thing, the providing force, the, 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 the thing that pushes it and prompts it to, to do what it was intended to do is his holiness. Oh. One writer put it like this. As at the same instant the sun should lose its light, it would also lose its heat. It would also lose its strength. It's also, it would also lose its generative and quickening virtue. If, if the sun lost its light, then there would be a domino effect of things that the sun produces and gives that it would also lose. Are you with me? So would all other attributes of God lose their purpose if ever the holiness of God ceased to be? The point I'm trying to get across is this. If it is God's intent and purpose for us to experience firsthand his attribute of love and his attributes of mercy and patience and kindness and goodness and grace, then doesn't it only make sense that it would also be his will for us to experience for ourselves his one attribute that gives life and purpose and meaning to all other attributes of God. Doesn't it only make sense that he wants us to have 
and experience with his holiness. No, we'll never be able to experience his holiness in the totality of it all. In a concentrated form, it would probably kill us. Literally. But it's very much, and I'm done. It's very much God's will for all of us to begin seeking after a greater understanding of the holiness of God every single day that we live. Every person in this room, and I'm done, every person in this room putting my name top on the list far above anybody else's needs a greater revelation of the holiness of God. And I'll tell you right now, this is such a deep topic. This is such a deep thing. Everybody doesn't want to talk about it. Everybody doesn't want to think about it. Everybody doesn't want to have to go through the process of getting to this place. But God is saying, I'm calling a people to holiness. And if you're willing to go through what needs to be gone through, Revelation 15 and 4, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you only are holy. His holiness is the mark that we are striving for. His holiness is the bar that we are trying to get to. His holiness is the level that we are trying to attain. His holiness is the measuring rod from which we are all measured by. And I pray that God would baptize me with a revelation of just how holy God really is. Because that's what it's going to take. More than just mental assent, more than just intellectual head knowledge of God's holiness, there has got to be a moment and a multitude of moments when we experience the holiness of God. Let's stand.